Today, Pastor David will continue our series on the ethos of Jesus, and we will see a question that Jesus asked his disciples that we must ask, also ask ourselves. Take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's worship. Our scripture this morning is in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You may be seated. I was at a conference the other week, and um, and one of the pastors, one of the speakers there, made this statement, and uh, he said that our worship reveals our revelation of Jesus. Our worship reveals our revelation of Jesus, and I thought, man, that is impactful. Now, worship, worship, it, it, what we just did in that moment—that's just one small aspect of worship, right? It's an opportunity to come together as the body and seeing and proclaim the goodness of our God. But the way we live our life every day is a worship towards God. And so how we worship reveals our revelation of who Jesus is. And I want to, I want to talk about that today. You know, we live in a time where we can customize just about anything, right? Uh, I, there was a, one year that Jenny had told me that she wanted what I call duck boots. Right? These are boots that you can wear and they get wet and, you know, you don't get your feet wet kind of thing, Right. But these duck boots that where she wanted them from, apparently you can also monogram the tongue of the duck boot. And I was told that she didn't just want the duck boots, she wanted them customized and monogrammed on the tongue of the duck boot. Well, she got the duck boots, she didn't get the monogram. I, I, I failed to hear her completely and to listen thoroughly, and, uh, and, and so therefore I failed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Jenny didn't hold that over me. She's not that type of person. She did get them customized on her own, even though I did not listen. Uh, but... Uh, but but, um, but you got that. You can customize just about anything. Sadly, today, people want to customize their faith. They want to customize even their Christianity and what they proclaim to believe in Christ. In which when we read the Gospels and we see what Jesus did, Jesus says nope to that, right? When you see the early church being formed and being, being established, you see Paul and Peter and the writers uh, of, of these letters that we see in the New Testament. And nope, you cannot customize your faith based on how you want it to be. You cannot customize it to your liking. We started this series two weeks ago called The Ethos of Jesus, and we're looking at how Jesus came into a world, into a culture that was completely different than what he had come to demonstrate, what he had come to establish. We said ethos is defined as a characteristic spirit of an era, a community, uh, a, uh, of, a, of a culture that's manifested by its beliefs and by its aspirations. And what Jesus was seeing manifested was not what he was calling us to. Obviously, what it was being manifested by the world itself, those who were not followers of God, followers of Yahweh, they were not representing, obviously, the culture that Jesus was calling us to, but also those who were religious leaders and who were teachers of God's law and God's word and, and who reminded people of the prophecies of God from God. 
those people were not living the culture that Jesus was coming to establish. He was coming to change their culture. He confronted a legalistic mindset that said, I can earn my righteousness or I can earn my own salvation. And he ultimately confronted what we, I told you about a mindset that's been developed called, uh, that, that follows this belief of antinomialism that says that, well, I'm under the grace of Jesus Christ. And because I'm under the grace of Jesus Christ, I can do whatever I want to. I can live however I want to. I can sin however I want to. My, I am, I am freed under the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is not the truth either. All right. And so Jesus came and, and he began to establish a culture. And when he stepped out on, on and, and began to speak, was famously become known as the Sermon on the Mount. He begins that message by talking about these these eight different things, this list, not of laws, but of characteristics that display the heart of the person who understands the culture and, the, and what Jesus has called us to. They become known as the Beatitudes. And he says, when you begin to live out the ethos of Jesus, when you begin to live out this culture and what, what he's called us to, you begin to live in that way. You begin to demonstrate that. And ultimately, when you demonstrate those beatitudes and that character and that nature, he goes on to say that you then become salt and light in the world around you to transform the culture around you and to bring that to the culture. Well, this week we're going to see another aspect of the ethos of Jesus in a conversation that, 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 that Jesus has with his disciples that, that started where Pastor Brian read for us. And it all centers around who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell us about this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. They all tell us about uh, what was happening and what we read. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us, and the, Pastor Brian read from Matthew, Matthew and Mark tell us that this all takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, you might not think this is that big of a deal, but to, in the context of what's taking place, it's important for us to understand where we are in, in this time of this writing and what, what they are surrounded by. I brought in just this artistic rendering of what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like in that time and in that day and and where they were. So this just kind of gives you an idea of what that area was. Back in the back, back there is this big rock cleft, right? That they would have been kind of, most believers believe, most scholars believe they were walking around in that area on that side of the region of Caesarea Philippi based on where we're going to go in the context of this conversation. But this area was an area that mainly, it was was an area of Panias. It was an area where a lot of worship went towards the God of Pan. Uh, today it's called Benias. I don't know why they changed it from a P to a B. I don't know. But anyway, that's what they did. And so you've got this area. And so this is kind of where they were. Now, this next picture that I have is from a picture of a, uh, of an Israeli tour where people are in this area. That's that rock cleft that was in the back distance of that rendering that you saw. And people are going by this and they're seeing this, this kind of this grotto, this entrance to this area where people would go in and they would worship these gods. All throughout this area was filled with, uh, with, uh, with uh, idolatry and uh, worship, mytho- mythological worship and things of that nature. If you can see like on that big cleft, there's these frames, cut out frames like they, they look like that. And they're cut out into the rock. Within those cutouts, they would sit idols. Inside that grotto, there was, a, there was water that would flow through. It would come down from the Mount Hermon, and it flowed through into these springs. And these springs would, were some of the springs that would feed the Jordan River. And so, uh, but people who worshipped the God of Pan would come into this grotto. They would go to that spring. They would go to that river. And they would, sacrifice, they would make sacrifices to the God of Pan. They would sacrifice a goat, and they would throw this goat into this water. And if the goat sank, that was good. That means the God of Pan accepted their sacrifice. If the goat floated, that was bad. 
that meant that the God of Pan did not accept their sacrifice. And so sadly, they would then turn and sacrifice one of their own children to try to be an acceptable sacrifice to the God of Pan. So Jesus stops in this area in front of all this this, that that takes place around this area, this worship of false gods and and this this idolatry that's taking place around them. And he stops and he asks them this question and he says, who do people say that I am? And so they begin answering and they tell him, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. And so we just pause for just a moment and just kind of think about how crazy that is that people then would think that Jesus was John the Baptist, right? It's crazy because Jesus and John the Baptist were basically the same age, right? John the Baptist was just a a couple months older. I mean, Elizabeth, he was cousin and she became pregnant just a little bit before Mary did. We see that in the gospels and they grew up together. John the Baptist ended up being the one that baptized Jesus when he began his earthly ministry. And now you've got some saying that, well, you're John the Baptist. How can they even think that? Well, it comes from the thought of, it comes from Herod. That's where it comes from. See, and it's interesting to note that in that first rendering I showed you, a lot of those structures, a lot of those those buildings, that architecture that you see in that, that was all built by Herod's son and his grandson. So they're standing in this area and, and you've got Jesus' disciples saying, well, some think you're John the Baptist. That some was namely Herod. You look in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 9, you see this 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 portion of writing that tells you how Herod struggled with who Jesus was. And some say that Luke chapter nine is a contradiction to Matthew 14 and and Mark chapter six, but most scholars believe that is not the case. What's happening in Luke chapter nine is Herod wrestling with the thought. Matthew 14 and Mark six is his verdict and the conclusion that he comes up with. This must be John the Baptist reincarnated or come back to haunt me basically is what Herod believed Jesus was. Because see, Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. So I imagine there was a little bit of guilt he was dealing with there. And he's thinking, this guy must be John the Baptist come back to get me. But nevertheless, they're standing in this area where all these structures have been built by Herod's son and his grandson. And his disciples look at him and say, well, some, namely Herod, think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or just one of the other prophets. And that, my, that thought that they think, that people think he is like one of these prophets, that gives you an idea of the way that people perceive Jesus in that day. I mean, think about how, how these prophets were perceived. John the Baptist was talking about living out in the wild and eating locusts and honey and that kind of stuff. And the other prophets were people that would speak the word of God fearlessly, unashamed. And, 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 and they were considered kind of just wild and crazy guys, just to use a, right? But that's how people maybe perceive Jesus. But regardless of all of that, what Jesus is getting the disciples to do is, is to consider in their own hearts who he is as they considered what other people said about who he was. And then he hits them with the question. And he looks at him and he says, who do you say I am? And this could quite possibly be one of the, one of the most important questions that Jesus asked when he's with his disciples. And it's not just important for them, it's important for us. Because we really need to consider who do we believe Jesus is? Our answer to that question is very important to our understanding of his ethos and what he's called us to. And it was important for the disciples as well. 
And the, the, the answer that we get and the answer that we see takes this conversation into a very, in, in a very powerful way. And it shows us from, from the nature of what we see next in the conversations that Jesus is going to have with his disciples and with others who begin to come around him, that he is not someone that you can just customize to your, to your life and to your beliefs and just let him fit in wherever he can fit in. He's calling you to something more. See, in, in front of all these pagan shrines and in front of all of these temples and all of these false gods and these idols, Jesus in his, is in an incredible way calling them to an account for what they believe about him. He's not looking for the disciples to, to follow conventional wisdom about who he is. He's not looking for them to follow conventional wisdom. And we're going to talk more about this in just a second, about who the Messiah was to be. He's looking for them to have an understanding about who he is and about the Messiah based on their relationship one with another and the conversations they have with one another. And he's looking in the same for us. He's not looking for us to believe in who he is based on conventional wisdom of what we glean from the world and what we glean from around us. He is looking for us to learn who he is based on our relationship personally with him and our relationship with the Father through him and how we come to know him. And so we see Peter's answer. Let's look at it again. And we saw it in verse 16. Peter looked at him and he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, this is the revelation that Peter has of Jesus. And this is a revelation that God has spoken himself over Jesus when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And when he, when he come up out of the water, it says, the gospels tell us that, that God spoke from the heavens and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This was a revelation that Peter had gleaned from that. And Peter would get a confirmation of that revelation. We keep going in Matthew, into Matthew chapter 18, we see what we've talked about before, the transfiguration. This is where Jesus, he, he takes on the full glory of who he is as God. He takes off his form of man as servant and he takes on the full glory of who he is as God. And Peter, James, and John are the only disciples that had the privilege to see that. But in that moment, Peter sees it and then he hears God say again from the heavens, this is my son, listen to him. And Peter needed to hear those words. We're going to see that more to say, don't just hear him, Peter, listen to him. But he's the son of God. And even deeper than that, he's the son of the living God. Again, in front of this area, with the worship of false gods and idols and statues and mythological creatures, Peter declares, you're the son of the living God. Everything else that takes place in this area, in this, in, the, in this grotto, in, in front of this rock, everything that takes place here, it is all being done to dead, false gods that aren't even gods. You are the son of the living God. See, Peter was realizing that Jesus was not just a good person. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a prophet. He was the son of the living God. See, prophets would proclaim and they say, this is the way to salvation. Jesus was saying, I am the way to salvation. Prophets would proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Jesus was saying, 
I say. He was the, he is the son of the living God. And Peter was realizing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that the prophets had been talked about. Now he didn't have a complete understanding of what that Messiah was going to look like, but he's beginning to understand, wait a minute, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. See, Messiah is the Hebrew translation is the Hebrew is the word we get from the Hebrew translation, Messiah, the old Testament we see throughout. We get in the new Testament in the Greek Christ is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. So if you ever wondered, Christ is not Jesus's last name. He's not Jesus Christ. That's full name. He's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God that came to save and came to redeem those who were lost. This is who he is. And so Jesus will go on here and he would begin to, to change their ethos about who the Messiah is. And we'll see that in just a second. But I want us to see his conversation with Peter from here because there's some powerful truth in here. And there's an ethos that affects us and our dynamic of understanding what Jesus has given us who follow him. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus looked at Peter and he replied to him. He said, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any other human being. In other words, you're getting this revelation through your relationship that you have with the father through me. He says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not be able to conquer it. And then he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So we notice here from the get-go, Peter, as we famously know him, if you've read the gospels, you've read the scripture, you've been to church, you've heard the name Peter before. Peter originally was Simon. That's who he was called as. When Jesus called him to follow him, he called him Simon, come follow me. And from here we realize he was the son of a guy named John. A lot of Johns in that day. And so he calls him. But then he looks at him in this moment and he says, you're going to be known as Peter. So what's happening is Peter is, because of the revelation he's coming to have of Jesus, he's seeing his life change. Because, see, you can't have a revelation about who Jesus is without it transforming who you are as well. That happens. And so he looks at Peter and he tells him, Peter, you, you, you're going to be called Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Well, you may not realize it or not, but there's been a debate for, for a long time about what that actually means. Is it Peter that's the rock upon which God builds his church? Or is it the profession that Peter makes of, upon what he believes in, in, in this truth that, that, that Jesus builds his church? Well... I'm just going to explain my study, my understanding, and what I'm, most scholars believe, and, and, and where I, I see it as well. But you've kind of got to go to a deeper study of this and dive in a little bit further than just reading it to see that the words that are used here in the original language and in the writing are two different words. Our writing translates it rock and rock, but they're two different words. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to, well, he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, you're now going to be known as Peter, which means, which was the word Petros, which means a small pebble. 
or a smaller rock. So again, they're standing in front of this huge cliff and through that river, likely like you've been to other rivers, you've been to other streams and you've seen where within those, there are rocks within that that have come off of something bigger. People were using those rocks to build platforms and build places where they worshiped other gods. And and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're a Petros. And then he says upon this rock, which is the word Petra, which was a phenomenal band, Christian band in the 80s and 90s. If you never listened to them, you should go back. You know, they have really high. It's awesome. Play, you know, it's just really good stuff. Long hair. You know, it's just great. But he says, he says, upon this rock, this Petra. Petra means a huge rock cleft. A bigger rock. A bigger structure. So again, standing in front of that rock cleft where people are going in and worshiping false gods, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're a small stone that's coming from a bigger rock. And upon that rock, I'm building my church. Now, Peter was a huge part in the growth of the early church. He was the first to preach in the day of Pentecost. He was the first to be bold enough to step out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and look people who had just yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, to look them in their eye and in their faces and say, the man that you killed is the Messiah, the son of God, the son of the living God. And you better repent and turn and follow him. He was the first to do that. He was the first to take the gospel to Gentiles. God had given him a dream and sent down a blanket with some pigs on it and told him, don't call what I've called clean, unclean and sent him to a Gentile's home to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a huge part of the foundation of the early church and how the church began to build to be built. But Peter himself in first Peter chapter two said, we're all living stones that are, that are built upon the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. Paul would echo those words in Ephesians chapter two. He would say the apostles and the prophets, they're part of the foundation of the early church, but they're all built upon the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there is no church without his death, without his resurrection, there is nothing. So how can it be built on anything other than the name of Jesus Christ and what he did? Right? So, It's like he's looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, you're a chip off the old block, dude. And you're going to take what's being imparted in you from me. And you're going to see the world transformed. You're going to take this whole ethos that you're getting from me. And you're going to change the ethos of the culture around you. And then notice what he says. He empowers them with the power of the kingdom of heaven. He tells them that they will be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that word of denotes possession, not location. Most people wanted to know where is the location of the kingdom of heaven? Where is that going to be? In fact, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 17, we see it. They're talking about where the kingdom of heaven, where the kingdom of God is located. And in Luke 17 verse 20 says that one day Jesus looked at the Pharisees and they asked him, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God cannot be detected by visible signs. He says, you won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. The kingdom of God was represented in the hymn 
And when you come to Christ and you come to the Father through Christ and you accept the reign of Jesus Christ as King, you become a part of the kingdom of heaven. But see, the idea again of the Messiah was that the Messiah would come and we've talked about this before and you may have this understanding. The Messiah would come and the Messiah would conquer. He would raise up an army and he would conquer God's enemies and then he would establish his throne and set up his kingdom in a place like Israel was in the Old Testament. He would establish his place and, and his kingdom and he would rule and reign from that place and from that location. And Peter was, we're going to see in just a moment, Peter was even confused by that himself. But the kingdom of God is when you are in Christ. You are in the kingdom of God when you walk in the authority and you walk in the authority of the kingdom of heaven when you come to the Father through Christ. And what does he tell you that you you have the authority to do? He says you have the authority to forbid whatever has been forbidden in heaven and, and to permit on earth whatever has been permitted in heaven. Remember, Jesus had told them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth. How? As it is in heaven. Right now. And it's not that he's given permission for them to just walk around and say, oh, I forbid that. Oh, I permit that. And then heaven goes, oh, well, they did it. Let's do it. No, you understand the will of God. What his will is to forbid from the enemy and to permit and to lose by the power of Jesus Christ. And you understand that from the word of God. And you do that and you walk in that authority. And what does he tell them? And, and, and listen, he's telling them, look, this is a change of heart. This is not something that happens through a political movement. This is a change of heart that happens in your life. And he, and he tells them that the gates of hell cannot stop them. And we often read that. I talked about this in our Signs of the Time series. We often read that and we think that, that, that the attack of the enemy and the attack of the, the spiritual, our spiritual enemy, when it comes against the church and when it comes against us, he, it's not going to prevail. It's not gonna, that's true. There's truth in that. We stand against the attacks of the enemy and he, he has no power over us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? He can't attack. But this is his defensive strategy. The gates of gates are not an offensive weapon. They are defense. And Jesus is telling them that Satan's defense cannot stop the kingdom of heaven from going where the kingdom of heaven needs to go. He cannot stop you from taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven to wherever you go and wherever he places you. You have an authority within you that is greater than the authority that's in this world. It cannot stop you. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. This is why some of us are so insecure and we're so inadequate or feel like we're inadequate at talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling them. Some of us feel like we, even a card, we get a card like this to invite someone to Easter and we're nervous about just handing someone a card. But Jesus is saying the gates of hell cannot stop you from taking his gospel and his truth wherever he leads you to take it. If you take it and you deliver it and they choose to receive it, the gates of hell can't stop it. He's put that authority in you and he's given you that authority. This is the ethos of Jesus. He holds the keys to death and to hell. And he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and to live in the authority of that kingdom. 
That's the ethos of Jesus. He is the son of the living God who came to bring salvation to the world. And it comes by no other way other than through him. And when you live in him, you walk in the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And then if you keep reading, you see Jesus tell, tell them, now don't go off and tell anybody about this, which seems a little weird. You're like, why? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to go out and tell people about you. But it's all about timing. It's all about their revelation. They were getting a revelation of Jesus, but they had not come to a complete revelation of Jesus because they had not seen Jesus' death and his resurrection. And the timing was not right for all that. That's what all that implies. But then we go into... One other section, and this is where we're going to wrap it up. But I want you to hear this because this is important. Matthew 16. You, you may have read it before. You may have heard it before. Matthew 16, start at verse 21. And again, we're going to see where Peter, he heard, but he didn't fully listen. And he hadn't fully had his revelation yet. Verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter, you know, he's just had his moment, right? Took him aside, began to reprimand him for saying such things. And listen to what he says. Remember what Jesus told him they were going to be able to do. Now listen to what Peter does. Heaven forbid you, or heaven forbid Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And then Jesus said to the disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of God will come with His angels in the glory of His Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, just real quick on that last statement, we hear that and we think, well, the disciples died. They haven't seen that. Well, three of them would see the son of man in his full glory. Like we just mentioned at the transfiguration, they would see him in his glory. They would see the representation of the power of the kingdom of heaven right in front of them. But again, Peter in this moment, he had heard where he was given authority to forbid and to permit. And he steps out to forbid and he's misunderstanding. You only forbid what heaven forbids. And heaven had not forbade the death of Jesus Christ. But again, that was hard for them to understand. The Messiah wasn't supposed to be someone that suffered. The Messiah was a conqueror. And he was a deliverer. And it was hard for them to connect the fact that the conquering king that the prophets of the old talked about was the same one that Isaiah talked about as being the suffering servant. That he was one and the same. And he came to suffer for us and to change our life. That was their problem. They were, they couldn't fully grasp yet who the Messiah was. They had a picture of the Messiah and it had to change. We have a picture sometimes of Jesus and what he's supposed to be to us 
and that might need to change. John the Baptist struggled with it while locked in that prison waiting on what was going to happen from Herod. He sends his disciples to Jesus and say, are you really the Messiah? I mean, we grew up together talking about this, talking about who you are. Are you really him? And Jesus sends word back and he tells him, I'm the Messiah. And he tells him, he gives him this, this list of things from the prophet Isaiah that said the Messiah would do. There's one part of that list he left out and it was set the captives free to which John was in that moment. But he told John, he said, I am the Messiah. I am doing these things. And then he says these words. He says, don't be offended by me or on account of me. In other words, it's as if Jesus was saying to John, John, just because the Messiah is not responding to you the way you think the Messiah ought to respond to you doesn't mean I'm not the Messiah. Just because you're not getting the answer that you're hoping to get doesn't mean I'm not God. Maybe your understanding of who I am just needs to change. And your understanding of what I'm doing through you and what I'm calling you to needs to change. And what he does through us and what he calls us to sometimes is not necessarily what we hoped he would call us to. But see, that's the Messiah. In his first coming, he comes as a king riding on a donkey to conquer sin. And then his second coming, though, He comes as the king of kings, riding on a white horse to conquer sinful man. His ways are not our ways. We don't understand everything. We don't get everything. We don't comprehend everything, but we have to trust him in his ways. Jesus didn't come so that you wouldn't suffer at some point in your life. Maybe you won't. I pray you won't. But he suffered for us. And sometimes what he does is in our pain, he redeems our pain. But we've often seen Jesus and treat Jesus as if he's a genie in a bottle, right? He's our, he's part therapist. He's part life coach. He's part financial advisor. He's there to give us what we want, to give us what we need to help us in the way we need him to help, to serve our purposes. And that's not what he's there for. He came to save us. He came to free us. He came to give us eternity with the Father. But we're called to serve His purposes. And we want to customize Christ to our liking. We want to take things from Him and things from His teaching and take what we like. But He's called us to crucify our desires and follow Him. And this was what Peter and these guys had to understand. They had been talking and they had been thinking about how he comes as a Messiah. He's going to conquer. We're going to sit around the round table together. We're going to sit at his right and his left and we're going to rule and we're going to reign. But Jesus is looking at them and he's telling them that they're going to have to give up their lives for his sake. We want to do what's convenient. And Christ has called us to carry a cross. Our obedience to him can't have limits. Our obedience to him should not be customizable. Salvation, there's no doubt, salvation is a free gift to everyone who would believe in him. But following Christ will eventually cost you something. It will call you to give up something you don't want to give up. It will cause you to take a step for him in a way that might be uncomfortable to you. But 
following Christ also means you walk in the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And when it looks like or feels like you're losing, you're still winning. The cross looked like the end. The cross looked like the enemy had won. But on the other side of the cross was the resurrection. And on the other side of the resurrection was a movement that is still impacting the world today. 2,000 years later, the cross was not the end. The pain, the suffering was not the end. It was not the victory. It was only a step. But see, when you customize your faith, you compromise the power of God in you. Listen, we don't need a faith that reshapes itself to fit society. Do you understand that? We don't need a faith that reshapes itself to fit society. We need a faith that reflects the ethos of Jesus and makes an impact on society. That's what we need. That's what we're called to. And when you embrace Christ and you put your faith in the one who has come to save you, to redeem you, and to call you to something bigger than your own self and bigger than your own desires, then you walk in him and you walk in the authority of the kingdom of God and the gates of hell cannot stop you from doing what God is working through you to do. But it all starts with how you answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Stand with me this morning. in this moment I just want us to take a moment to reflect this may be a little awkward for some of you to sit and to take a moment in quiet to just reflect but I think it's important today in the light of this message in light of what we see Jesus speak to his disciples and the question that he asks them who do you say I am and the call that he gives them to take up a cross and follow him Consider who do we see Jesus as? Do we see Jesus as just a good person, just a good teacher, maybe a prophet? If so, we need to see him as more. Do we see Jesus as just someone that comes to offer us salvation and give us get us out of hell? He's more than that. is not completely to who he is. That we have only treated Jesus as someone that we can gain some good information from. We can enjoy his teaching. Father, I pray today that you can help them see you as more than that because you are. Help them.
him today to see you as the son of the living God. God, for those of us who may be in this room watching online who have treated you as just someone that that allows us an opportunity where we don't have to spend eternity in hell. When we treat you just as someone that benefits our life when we're looking to be benefited. God, challenge our hearts today. Help us to see you as more than that. Father, there's some of us who have looked at you and we've we receive your salvation we receive all that but there's aspects of you as lord we have not been willing to put you completely on the throne and we've got things in our life that we're not willing to to give up we're not willing to take off of the throne seat god they're controlling our life more than we're allowing you to lead and direct Spirit, work in our hearts. Let us be receptive to your voice. Father, if we haven't understood the authority that you have given us to walk in boldness and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, help us today to understand that authority. spiritual enemy is not greater than the God we serve. Help us to see today the victory we have in Him, the authority we walk with in Him. Father, we want a greater revelation of You. So help us, God, as we have our relationship with you and we glean from your word and we pray and we seek you and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our heart and to speak into our life, that Father, we will also grow more and more in our revelation of you. And as we do, then we will allow the Holy Spirit to work through us and to do the things that you have called us to do through the power of your Holy Spirit and the boldness of your Holy Spirit. prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.